I think it's really important to kind of be able to place where it is in the big picture. So, my name's Yvonne, and I was, I've been thinking a lot lately um, about lemons. You know that whole thing of like when life gives you lemons, you're supposed to make lemonade. Well, often I want to take the lemons, <laughs> throw them back at life. Um, you know, not everything goes the way that we want it to, right? Not everything in life is all ends up roses. And if you're a young person in the room today and that's a shock to you, I'm really sorry. But life does not always go according to plans. There are potholes, there are U-turns, there are roundabouts, there are curveballs thrown at you. All sorts of things happen and there are plot twists in your life. Um, and particularly, we're probably quite aware of it during these COVID times. You know, your best laid plans to plan a 14th birthday party go down the toilet because there's just so much going on in the world around us. There's so there's COVID, there's flu, there's, you know, gastro, you name it. There's everything. And if you haven't got it, someone else has got it. And, and plans are going awry. And things are different at the moment. And things are particularly different at the moment because there's all these other sort of bigger crises going on in the world. You turn the news on and you hear that, like, the world's not okay and there's climate change and there's wars and, and the, you know, the, the price of electricity is crazy and groceries cost too much and there's $11 lettuces. What's wrong with the world when the lettuce costs $11? You know, life throws all sorts of different curveballs. Things don't always work the way we want. Sometimes we feel like we can't catch a break, right? So, in this season for us, you know, we're still right in the midst of it. And we've picked up this theme for the year of... Thank you. Well done. That was on purpose. Breathe. We want to actually stop and we want to pause and we want to say, where are we? And we want to say, God, where are you? And then we want to say, God, where would you like us to be? How can we participate with you? So we want to breathe. And in amongst that, we wanted to look at this topic of rebuild. We wanted to go back and have a look at this story of Ezra and Nehemiah as the people begin to rebuild. So like Alex shared, they had been, um, they had been to the promised land, out of the promised land, heading back to the promised land. So this is the story of the people actually coming back to try and be the people of God again. Because the last time they were in the promised land, they stuffed it up so badly that God called down the Babylonians and said, oh, just, it's just a mess. And God allowed the Babylonian army to overtake Jerusalem, to flatten the temple, to break the walls, to smash their houses and to carry the people off like prisoners of war, and put them in exile. And they were there in exile, God's people, for a really, really long time. And it was really hard. And last week, Troy told us the story um, of Zerubbabel, who was one of like, the first to take a bunch of people back, and we're going to go back to Jerusalem. Yeah, here we are, because um, the king had sent them back, saying, it's okay, why don't you rebuild the temple, the place where you worship God? So they began that work of rebuilding the temple. And today, we've got the next guy who comes along. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one story, right? So not two separate, like it's all one story. And if you put it together into one story, it's got three acts. The first act, Zerubbabel gets a bunch of people and they rebuild the temple. Woohoo! It doesn't, it doesn't go as easily as that. Listen to Troy's talk last week. Second act is Ezra. So he's coming back not to build the temple because that's been done, 
but to rebuild the people and to rebuild their practices and to rebuild their orientation towards the law, to kind of get them to come back and have a look. Now, what does it say, folks? What does it say in here? And his, his job is to reorient the people to God, to teach the law, to share the scriptures, to bring them back in and to offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices in the temple and all of those things that the priest needs to do. The third act, so there's the rebuild the temple, there's the rebuild the people, and then there's the rebuild the wall, and that's the rest of the story of Nehemiah, and you'll hear that over the next few weeks. There's lots of really good stuff in it, but today I'm talking about that middle one, Ezra, and what did Ezra have to say? So Artaxerxes, that's a guy with a lot of X's in his name, Artaxerxes was, okay, not a Babylonian king, because by this time, the Babylonian Empire, where the people of God were in exile, had been defeated by a new mob, the Persians. So Artaxerxes sent off uh, this second wave of people with Ezra. So he says, Ezra, I want you to go back and I want you to build the temple of your God. Sorry, not build. Rebuild the people and bring them back into the temple and to teach them the law. So that's that's Ezra's job, and he gets this great letter from Artaxerxes sending him back. So a second wave of people go back. Now, Ezra doesn't go back empty-handed. He goes back with a heap of goodies, okay? Because somewhere way back in the backstory, in the original temple, they had all these really good bowls and things that they used to be able to worship God and make their offerings. And this other guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he had stolen them from the temple, stuck them in his own temple to worship all his millions of different gods. But this new king, as he's sending Ezra back, says, well, we better send the bowls from your king, from your god, back with you. So he's got all the bowls and all the gold, and he's got gold and silver from the king. So he's feeling pretty good. He sets off with a bit of a skip in his step. He's got a blank check in his pocket because the king said, take all the silver and gold you want so that you can buy cattle and um, grain so you can make offerings in your new temple. So he's feeling pretty fabulous. He's feeling pretty amazing. He actually says this in Ezra 7. Blessed be God, the God of our fathers, who put in the mind of the king to beautify the temple of God in Jerusalem. Not only that, he caused the king and all his advisors and influential officials actually to like me and to back me. My God was on my side and I was ready to go and I organised all the leaders of Israel to go with me. That's from the message. He's good. He's good to go. And his mission was to rebuild the people and to teach them the law. There's part of me that wonders whether, as he set off with a spring in his step, click of his heels, whether he wasn't imagining in his mind's eye all the scripture that he'd remembered. He probably memorised this thing from Jeremiah have a listen. He's probably sort of saying this in his head as his four-month journey with all of his people, heading off back to do his job. In Jeremiah, he's remembering that God said, long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I've drawn you to myself. I will rebuild you, my Israel. You will again be happy and dance merrily with your tambourines. Again, you'll plant your vineyards You'll eat from your own gardens. The day will come when watchmen will shout from the hill country of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing for joy, Israel. Shout for the, 
greatest of nations, shout out with praise and joy. I will bring them forth, and from the distant corners of the earth, I will not forget the blind and the lame, the expectant mothers, the women in labor, and a great company will return. And it goes on and on and on. There will be dancing and joy, and there will be great amazement at how good life is back in Jerusalem because God did not forget them and he did not leave them in exile in Babylon. Woohoo! So he's got a click in his heels, skip in his step, a song of praise in his heart, and it is all really good. Can I have the clicker, please? Someone took the clicker. Thank you. So there they are on their way back. There he is. He's got click in his heels, skip in his step, song in his heart, fully triumphant, expectant for God. He's going to do great things. Because there's always a In every great arc of narrative, there's always a plot twist. So there's a plot twist. And in this plot twist, some people come to him because, you know, he's arrived in Jerusalem. All is well. All the gold bowls made it. All the gold and the silver made the four-month journey. They're there. They're settled. They've opened up their scriptures. They're ready to start teaching the people. And some of his people come to him, Ezra, and deliver some very bad news. The people have been compromised. They had no sooner arrived than they enfolded themselves in the ways of the local practices. They'd plunged headlong into all sorts of ungodly practices. They'd married the locals. They'd taken up their local practices. They were worshipping the other gods. Practices that were not in line with what God wanted them to do, not in line with the teaching of the law that Ezra had come to deliver. This is what he says. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat down with me, because out of this outrage, because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees. I lifted up my hands to the Lord my God and I prayed. Oh my God, I'm utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. We are in over our heads. It is devastating. He had a click in his heels and a skip in his step and he was ready to go. He had hope in his heart. He had God's words of I will return you to your people and it will be great in his mind, and he gets there and he skids to a halt as he's realised that the people have compromised. And he's devastated and he falls to the ground and says, this is not how it was meant to be. This is not how it was meant to be. So from our vantage point here today, having the entirety of the Bible, not the 75%, we know that this plot twist was coming. We knew it would come. We know that's going to happen in this story because we, if we've read any of the other stories of the people of Israel, we know that this is what they do. They've got God. They're doing their thing. 
they make a mistake, they cry out to God, God sends them somebody, a leader, a judge, or somebody or other, then all is well for a little while, but then they forget because that leader dies or they just get bored of that leader and they stuff it up again. So they cry out to God and then God's in and it. And it goes round and round and round. And every time you read about the people of Israel, this is what's happening. They are on a cycle of they're okay. God sends someone and, and they go round and round again and they forget their God and they forget the way they were going to live and they forget their commitments and they end up in this place. So we saw it coming in some ways, but I wonder if Ezra did, because he sounds pretty devastated. He's fallen to his knees in the dust for the best part of the day, just agonizing over the fact that this is not how it was meant to be. I wonder if you've ever fallen to your knees and said, it wasn't meant to be this way. It's not how it was meant to be. I know I have. I have been in a place in life where I thought that my life was going to go this way. I had set out with a click in my heels and a skip in my step with hope in my heart that life was going to play out this way. And then I found myself in the ashes, in the dust, on my knees saying, it wasn't meant to be this way. This isn't how it was meant to pan out. And I really relate to Ezra sitting there in the dust. Whether it's that our prayers are not answered the way we thought or our best laid plans don't pan out or we've gotten things wrong, we've made mistakes, people have hurt us, things have fallen apart. There's disappointment in this life. It does not always pan out the way we thought it would. And I want to sit beside Ezra and I want to, I want to say to him, I get it. I know. I understand. I really, like, I really actually understand what it feels like to be on your knees, tearing your hair out, ripping your clothes, going, it's not meant to be this way. So this guy, Theodore Parker, long time ago, wrote this. He wrote, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. But from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. Now, I want to take this guy's words because Martin Luther King took this guy's words and he, he, he sort of tidied them up and he, he said in one of his great speeches in a time when he was fighting for justice and civil rights, he said... The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I want to take it and just, just turn it a little bit further. And I want to say, the arc of God's history is long, but it bends towards Jesus. It does. It actually does. The arc of God's history is long, but it, it curves, it bends towards Jesus. And I want to... I want to sit down with Ezra in the dust and say, oh, Ezra, I totally get it. I, I, want, I want to like rip, rip, the, rip the hair out of my head alongside you. I get it. I get the pain. This is not how it was meant to play out. But the arc of God's history is long and it bends towards Jesus. I want to remind him of that. I think of the two 
men on the road to Emmaus. So this is a story in the New Testament. So we're skipping over to the other 25. It's a story in the New Testament where there's two people and they are walking along the road and they're dragging their heels and their faces are downcast and their hearts are broken and they're probably saying, this is not what it was meant to be like. This is not how it was meant to play out. Because they had been with Jesus. They had been his followers. They had sat at his feet. They had listened to all his teaching. They had bought in hook, line and sinker. And they were sure that Jesus was going to be the great Messiah. He was going to save the the people of God. And he was going to make all the difference. And on this day, they are heading back to Emmaus. Dragging their heels. Hope drained out of their hearts. Because they had hoped that Jesus would be the great Messiah. And in this story, the risen Jesus, who has died and risen again, he actually comes along beside them, but they don't recognise him at the time. For whatever reason, they don't recognise him. He joins the little party and they're walking along. And he's like, why are you guys so downcast? And they're like, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem today? And 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 they, they share and then the risen Jesus, who they still don't recognise, starts unpacking all the scriptures and starts telling this big, long arc of a narrative to these people and unpacking it and make, trying to pull some threads and draw some things together. But don't you remember this? And haven't you learned that? And didn't you read this? And, and whatever. And as they go along, they get to their destination and they say to the guy, who they don't recognise, why don't you come in and have some food with us? And as he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they're like, oh! Oh, we totally get it. Excuse me. (coughs) We totally get it. You're the Messiah. So within an hour, they had turned on their heels and hot-footed it back because Jesus had risen and and the, the story made sense to them. And as they're walking back, they say this line, which I think is fantastic. They look at each other and say, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he was talking and sharing and unpacking all of this stuff. So they went from, this is not how it was meant to be, to their hearts burning with the truth that the long arc of history bends towards Jesus. When, when we're sitting in a place and we're brokenhearted and we're wondering how is it that we are where we are? It was not meant to be like this. I just want to take a quick little sidestep and give a couple of points. In those moments when we are saying it wasn't meant to be like this, I wonder if it would be worth us processing our unmet expectations. Where did the expectation of it was going to be like this come from? Because I know from, from my situation, when I was in the dirt saying it was not meant to be like this. I, I purchased a ticket to a life that I thought I was going to have. And I bought it hook, line and sinker. And some of those things were good and right things to hook my hope on. But some of them were unrealistic expectations as well. And so it might be helpful in those moments when we're pulling out our hair saying it wasn't meant to be this way, that maybe we should reassess our expectations. Were they right? Maybe they were. Maybe some of them weren't. Maybe it's worth having a think. The other thing that's probably worth doing, and this may just be me, I'm happy to be the only one in the room, but it may well be worth 
making sure that we don't err on the side of God must be not for me. God must be bad. God must be cruel. God must be unhelpful. God must be not for me. In those moments when we have, we're crying out, and this is not how it was meant to be, it's actually really wise to err on the side of actually God is good. Maybe it's, maybe it's something more in this and to not go straight to blame. The fourth thing that... I don't know how many there were. The next thing would be it would be really worth taking a walk with Jesus because unlike Ezra, we live further down the curve and we can actually take a long walk with Jesus and we can actually pour our hearts out and say, Jesus, it wasn't meant to be like this. And maybe what he did for the people on the road to Emmaus, he might do for us. He might pull some threads and make some sense and clarify things and reorder things and reconstruct things so that we can understand where we're at. And maybe the last thing is that we need to remind ourselves not to panic because the arc of God's history is long and it bends towards Jesus. So maybe we're best, not, best to not panic. So back to the Ezra story. So back to the Ezra story. In Ezra's mind, he came not to rebuild the temple and not to rebuild the walls, because that's, that's a later job. He came to build the people and to orient them towards Jesus, sorry, orient them towards God and the scriptures. This would have been something that he had. There you go, there's two slides, in case you didn't note them down. He might have had Deuteronomy in his mind. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting back up and tie them on your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. That's what Ezra was trying to do. He was trying to get them to write it on their doorposts and write it on their foreheads and remember it when they got up and remember it when they went to sleep and remember it when they went out and remember it when they got back in. And to be honest, he could teach them these things until he was blue in the face. And it might make a bit of difference, but the people of God would still be on this cycle of forgetting and remembering and needing a solution all the time. So that stuff that I read in Jeremiah earlier that Ezra had in his heart, it was he was skipping along the road, ready to do this great thing with God. This is what it says at the end of Jeremiah. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So Ezra could tell them to write it on the doorposts of their hearts and on their foreheads and on their arms and their hands and remember it day and night and all that kind of stuff. But in Jeremiah, God is telling us that one day someone will come 
who will write it on the hearts of the people, on the, on the very being of the people, on the very core of the people. And that person is Jesus. Jesus doesn't necessarily have to teach all the law, although he does, but he writes it on people's hearts. And I did wonder about the link between the two men on the road to and from Emmaus with their hearts burning within them. You know, is that because Jesus wrote this on their hearts in that moment? You can know, but what about when you know? Ali spoke before about that movement from head to heart and Alex shared about that had happened with him. That's, that's what's going on here. When Jesus teaches, our hearts are changed and the deep truths we believe and the way that we are wired and the wounds that we have, they're all changed. He lances wounds, he stitches people's hearts, he engraves truth into us. No matter how good a priest Ezra was, Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the actual real one. And so the story of Ezra and is going along, it's actually a devastating, not very well put together story because we like an arc that goes like this and then there's a twist and there's a wonderful resolution. And in this, the people just aren't solved. Yes, they sort of solve their problem if you read on into the rest of the chapters. But actually, Jesus solves the issues. This is what it says in Hebrews 10. Day after day, sorry, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's Jesus. Jesus did it once and for all. Ezra, Ezra had all of the gold and the silver from the king so that they could buy everything they needed to make the offerings in the temple. And that was good, but it needed to keep it getting done and did again and again and again. But Jesus, he is, the, he is the priest that writes the law on our hearts and his sacrifice on the cross was the once and for all sacrifice. So while the Ezra story doesn't go the way he thought it would, the arc of history does because we know that Jesus came and Jesus died and he made that once for all sacrifice and he wrote God's law on our hearts and changed us. Do you guys want to come back up? I've just got a few things that I want to finish with that I want you to think about. If you're not sure that Jesus does write on, on, our, on our hearts, if you're not sure, if you haven't had a good look at him and you're in the midst of life and you're like, I don't know, was this the way it was meant to pan out? Maybe take a leaf out of the book of those two people on the road to Emmaus. Open your eyes and take a good long walk with Jesus. Have a look at what he's got to say. Speak to somebody else who knows him. Invite yourself in and say, well, tell me, is there something you want to write on my heart? Is there something you want to change in me? 
Is there something you want me to know about the long arc of history and how it points to Jesus? You might be someone who's forgotten. You might be someone who's been going along this journey for a really long time and you know that the arc of God's history is long and that it points to Jesus. And you've had that sense of encounter with him before, but it is, it is far away and a little bit forgotten. Then maybe today is a day when you can actually say, God, I want you to reawaken me. I want you to remind me again what it means to trust you. No matter which way life is heading, no matter what it looks like, to be somebody who actually asks God to change me. And you might be sitting here going, oh, I knew all that. Totally knew all that. Great. Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell? Because trust me, there are people around you in life and they are on their knees and they are tearing their hair out and they are saying, this is not, surely this is not how life was meant to be. Surely. And they need someone to come in beside them and to come up real close and to whisper in their ear, the arc of God's history is long and it bends towards Jesus and Jesus will make all the difference in your life. So if you know it, good on you. Who are you going to tell? Because there are thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people out there who just don't know or just aren't sure or who've never been told that the arc of history is long and it bends towards Jesus and Jesus changes lives. In a time when we wonder if the ground beneath us is a bit uncertain, Jesus is solid ground. He is. I wonder if we might stand and sing. We're going to sing about Christ alone because he's the only answer to life. Let's stand.